back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope this finds you well. And I'm Joel, and this podcast is for you if you are a coach doing deep transformational work, a facilitator. You're just somebody who is passionate about this amazing, rich journey, the tapestry of our our human lives and the evolutions, the, the growth and transformations that we can go through. Then this podcast is for you. And today, I'm speaking with Thomas Hubel. He's one of my favorite guests on the podcast. And we're going to go deep into process work, the work that Thomas does in the world. And we'll talk about things like why presence is the crucial factor in any healing or integrative or transformational process. We explore the path of evolution, this this journey of subject-object transcendence and our journey into soulhood. And we explore some of the key distinctions in the high art of being a transformative facilitator, whether that's being with groups or individuals, including some of the different streams of transformational work, like the individual, the ancestral, and the collective. So I think there's some really rich distinctions that Thomas offers that will serve you if you're doing this type of work. A few more words about Thomas. Thomas is a renowned teacher author and international facilitator whose lifelong work integrates the core insights of the great wisdom traditions and mysticism with the discoveries of science. Since 2004, he's taught and facilitated programs with more than 100,000 people worldwide. And the origin of his work and more than two decades of study and practice on healing collective trauma is detailed in his book called Healing Collective Trauma, a process for integrating our intergenerational and cultural wounds. He's somebody that I personally learned a tremendous amount from in the last few years. So let's dive in. All that being said, here is the podcast with Thomas Hubel. So Thomas, it's good to be with you again. Uh, How's things with you today? Yeah, thank you, Joe. I'm happy to see you again. It was quite some time that we didn't see each other. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about our conversation today. Uh, we're gonna, I think we've got a lot of different things to talk about. So we'll talk a bit about the, the different um, strands of your work, which is quite broad. Um, actually, I, do, I think a question that I would love to ask at the beginning, which we didn't check in about at the, in our little check-in before we started recording is, What's the importance of presence for you in any transformative kind of work, whether that's with individuals or with the collective? Yeah. Um, I think um, like that presence is the only place or the only isness where transformation happens. There's no, there's no transformation outside of presence. But what does that mean? Because presence is integrated history. So many people think history is behind us. And I would say, no, history is talking right now. So integrated history has this conversation now. Millions of years, like, did you develop a liver? Do you have any IP on liver or on anger? (laughs) Joy? No, you don't. You don't have, do you have any IP on democracy or whatever we call at the moment democracy no 
Why? Because it took millions of years until our cells stick together to livers. We develop complex emotions. We could develop uh, complex thinking. You know, most of the stuff we think about, somebody thought about already before. So it's not that it's so genius that we are so genius. You know, it's like we are, we are sitting in the achievements of millions of years of life. And we add something to it, definitely, or hopefully. And, um, and, and I think that integrated history is presence and is saturated by deep time, like, like it has depth because it's connected to the roots. And then unintegrated history is the past. So this is information and experience that is split off and it lives in the past. It lives where it has been split off. When I'm identified with those fears, that shame, that anger, that, you know, the body sensations or the distancing and the feeling of being separate, then I live partly identified in the past. So I say I'm not fully present. But presence is the only place where we can onboard split off experience into a fuller sense of presence. That's why trauma work is so important because it always adds something that we learn when we integrate trauma. We be, the isness of presence becomes bigger and, and more whole. And, and I think that's why there is no transformation in the past or in the forward projection of the past that many people think is the future. But as Otto Shama also says, like the, in presence, the future is being born. And in presence, the past is being onboarded. So the only transformational place is when at least, you know, one of a group or one of a diet or one of uh, the people in the room rests in a deeper present state. Otherwise, we're all lost in the past. And we are arguing from the past with each other. And then we are repeating it often. Mm. There's a lot in what you said there. And so I'm hearing that as we do the integrative work, we actually increase the, I don't know how I would put this, but like our capacity to, to be presence and to embody the full intelligence, the full free expression of, of intelligent presence. And I'm just wondering um, if, if then presence is, and I think I hear you saying this, but presence is actually a key ingredient in integrating what has been un not integrated or split off as you described like that um the presence is actually a key healing or integrating factor is that right that's right the presence is the i believe the only option we have is in presence we and there are, of course there are different also let's say contemplative states that compose presence and like if you take the spiritual dimension into account but in the, in the interrelational presencing of mindfulness, like how present I am in myself while I am with you, that is the core ingredient of every also clarity or perceptive awareness. I can feel you only when I'm here, when I'm identified in my stuff, or I'm thinking all the time about other things, or I'm busy with my emotions, then I'm not really open enough to perceive you deeply and to get a sense of what's happening in the interrelational space 
with a degree of clarity that I need, for example, as a facilitator. And so presence is something that is a must to cultivate for everybody who does any kind of facilitation, coaching, therapeutic, or you know, large group facilitation work. I think presence is our home. And when, when we are at home, we are able to be of service. When we are not at home, we need support to integrate that part. That's why I think for every one of us that does work with clients or patients or people, that we are um, like that we are deeply committed to clarify our our own uh, process more and more because that's the only thing that really works. You know, is that embodied presence is the only thing that really works. So of course I will be deeply committed every time I run into difficulties, every time I have an unclear client interaction, every time there's an issue in my life. Wow. Because that's my that's where my universe expands. And that all my future clients will benefit from me integrating that. So that's why I think it's a it's a, a deeply ethical as a facilitator to constantly keep integrating what shows up in my own life. Mm. I, I think you just alluded to my next question, the answer, which is like, how, how do we start to do that? You said that, yeah, difficult clients, for example, can be, I'm hearing like a, a doorway or, a, you know, um, pointing towards work that can be done inside of us. And you'd use that word process as well. I just wonder, like, um, how we do that, you know, like we might notice, for example, you said emotions or some difficult things that come up. What, what, what's the process then that we can do? Right. So <clears throat> whenever I, with a client or with, or with people in my life, whenever I feel I run into a situation that, will, that I would label a bit difficult or challenging, I know my computing power of the moment is getting overwhelmed. So it's like here, it's like a part of the process starts to be outside of my consciousness frame. So I still see the process up to here, but mm -hmm. this, what I do with my hands, if I keep my hands still now, or if I'm moving it, you can see well. And so like a difficult client is a client that sometimes moves out <laughs> and then moves in again and moves out of my conscious awareness. And when something happens and the process is bigger than the awareness, then it's partly unconscious. When the, the process is held in awareness, then we call it conscious experience. In our work, we call this a 4D process. It's like three dimensions, like embodiment, plus time space, like the capacity to witness. So then a process is held in conscious witnessing and is synchronized in space and time. Mm -hmm. So a grown-up is a, a synchronization of so many levels of development that all either play together as an orchestra, they play a symphony together, or some of them, the more regressive or stuck parts, they're playing other music, you know, like, and then it's, you meet sometimes grown-up people, but sometimes they behave a little bit strange because they're regressive. And then they say, oh, how does this fit to... Doesn't... So that feeling means that something hasn't been integrated. And when a, a client touches such a part in the facilitator or coach or therapist, so then it, we can't process 
the experience according to our intelligence. And what I do then is either I slow down the process for a moment, like as an experience facilitator, when I know that I'm even, I often say when I only think one thought about the process, I'm slowing down because I, I feel that I don't feel something because I start thinking about it. Because either thinking is emergent out of the process, so then the thinking and the sensing is the same. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. It's the same, it's one emergence. But if my thinking is suddenly split off from my sensing, so I say, oh, what should I do next? Right. When I think, I know I lost something. I say, oh, wait, wait a moment, why am I thinking this? Like, I, I, I lost my sense of my client. And then I say, okay, then I need to slow down because to speed up, which is the natural inclination often for many people say, oh, if I don't know, so maybe I do an exercise with the client or maybe I, I try to make them feel more or maybe I give them a question or, but I, hello, where am I when I think like that? So what's happening to my... Yes, we can take those crutches as facilitators, you know, and apply something. Once we know that if I'm in that state, I'll, I'm not fully aware of the process. So that's very important to know. I can save the process in a way for this kind of session or this kind of workshop because I'm experienced and I can apply such methods. But for the excellence of facilitation, I need to look, okay, what actually happened there? And I can do that in the moment to a certain degree while I'm, because I slow down. I say, okay, let's take a breath. Let's take a moment to feel both what's, what's happening right now. And that gives me a moment maybe for my processor to catch up and to be online again. Or I see, okay, with this client, I'm hitting an edge in my own development where my own filter system of my own trauma past is not allowing me to see the process fully. So I need to go to a supervision or to a reflection later and find out what, what am I missing here? Because in the moment I go to the supervision and I open it, it opens for me and my client. You know, it's like my client benefits from me going to the supervision. And that's why I think like everybody who works with people in process work needs like some sort of supervision in order to be able to refine, 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 refine. And then we become more and more fluid. And that fluidity is the presence that our clients step into. It's a, it's a tremendous, powerful sensing and, of course, cognition. My mind is also there but not my mind like a helicopter on top of nature. My mind is a, an emergent part out of nature. That's a big difference. Trauma creates helicopter minds, thinking about, and life evolution creates emergent thinking that is connected to nature. And I think we want to support as much as we can the second version. I'm really excited to hear that. I, I think like what you just said, I think is part of a paradigm shift we're going through, you know, that, that we've lived with this more and more emphasis in a helicopter mind, perhaps, but, but there's a out of sync with that kind of emergent 
uh, way of orienting in the world. And I think we can talk about that later because it's a big topic. But what you just said, I think, is so powerful because I recognize that when, you know, suddenly I'm out of that, I, I kind of call it make a flow state. Where I'm deeply attuned and there's no referential thinking. It's all emerging out of the process. And you can, you know, you can feel it's like crystallized and attuned and, and then you can feel where, boom, suddenly it, you, you're out of it, you yeah. know, and, and suddenly I'm like, oh, right. and there's a bit of pressure comes in, tension. And so I, I think it's such a powerful distinction that you've just um, sh- shared with people there. I want to underline that. And um, so then you, you said, yeah, in the moment we can actually do some of the work by um, slowing down and, you know, noticing that it's happened. It might be good here to just bring in. I know we've spoken about this in the past, but uh, the 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 work, how we are being with ourselves and our clients, and you know what what are some of the important principles? Like one, I think I would invite you to speak about is like there's no we're not trying to get to an idealized state. Uh, we're not trying to fix things. There's no such thing as a, a negative thing that we need you know state that we need to get rid of like could you share a little bit about maybe mm-hmm. the principle underlying the process yeah right the principle i think the first principle is it always reflects my own inner way of being if i learned that first of all my own stuff is really okay the fact that I have fears, that I have, you know, that I feel sometimes ashamed, the fact that I sometimes don't know that I'm sometimes insecure, uncertain, or angry, or sad, or all whatever, that whatever is humanity's history that led up to the fact that I went through the, that I have the ancestors that I have, that I went through this family system that I grew up in, that I had the attachment process that I had, that I learned what I learned. And so what I'm saying is the more I'm, I spend enough time clarifying my own inner world, I come to a place of recognizing intelligence in the places where it's obvious and recognizing intelligence where it seems like something's missing or something's not okay. And that my all my defense mechanisms are super intelligent mechanisms that are there for a good reason because it was better with them than without them. And I think that's a key understanding because many people still try to hide their weaknesses and they just want to be in their strengths because that gives them belonging. But if I, as a facilitator, am dependent on that dynamic, that that's how I get love and how I get attention, then I'm inclined to push the process of my clients into a good process for me to be good. And... And I think that's a big clarification. Can I rest in myself as much as possible for my clients to have the freedom to emerge as their own process? And of course, there are levels of skill and uh, competence in the facilitation, and we want to honor that. And also in training programs, we need to highlight where the skills and where maybe we need to learn more or practice more. That's all, all true. But for many of us, if 
if we start to create a pressure that my client needs to go somewhere or heal or develop or be successful, then I might override their natural process. And then I create stress. But if I'm here to, as you described it beautifully, you are in a flow state with your client. And even you're in a flow when it's stuck. Because when something, when somebody says stop, and we respect stop, so we're not stuck. We respect what's happening. So it's great that it stops because we say stop. So let's be with the fact, or when something's not working, great. Because in order for something not to work, something needs to work that it's not working. You know, life is movement. So if something's not moving, something stops the movement. So then it's great because it shows us that something stops the movement. So if I can stay as a facilitator in this constant curiosity that there is nothing inherently wrong with any kind of process, but there's something inherently right, often maybe we don't understand it immediately because we're not able to sense it or feel it or you know grasp it in its depth. That's okay. And, and so that life is a movement and we are dealing often in the facilitation with certain degrees of reduced movement. So traumatization or conditioning creates reduced movement. And people come to us because of their reduced movement. They come, this is not working. It is hard for me. Or you have an issue or my business X, Y, Z, or I don't know, in my relationship X, Y, Z. And so the symptoms that are coming to our offices there is a route to those. And I think the better we are at reading what's not being said explicitly, um, the better we are as facilitators. But for this, when I can rest in myself, when I know where my energy comes from, and, and I can be in that inner generosity in myself, and I clarify certain aspects of how I get love, how I get attention, what, what gives me belonging, and so that I can be a real partner for my clients and not somebody that needs my clients. Because if I need something from them, I already am compromised in the relation. So I cannot be anymore the mirror they ask me to be. I, I might be the mirror that their comfort asks me to be, but not anymore the mirror that their soul asks me to be. And, um, and that's why I think having a community like like coaches rising you know where we can come together periodically and we can refine those and we have we have a community also where we get reflections we have smaller supervision we have all kinds of elements where i can learn to see what i can see i think for that's the key element that trains us to become really skillful and more senior facilitators or coaches or and, um, and senior doesn't only mean that um, I do it for a long time. Senior means that my own energy is evolving all the time. That's what it means. Um, and that I see I'm constantly changing my own energy is growing. And that's why my work keeps updating itself. So there's a constant updating mechanism. And so as long as I feel what I do is updating itself, it's great. If I feel after some time that for some years already things stay the same, 
then it's at least good to look at it. Not Maybe that's also right for my evolution, but maybe I lost a bit the train and I became a bit habitual because that habit works. But it's not anymore fully my leading edge, you know, where I feel super excited every day that I wake up in the morning and I know that's exactly what I want to be doing because it's the leading edge of my own soul. I, um, I'm... I actually feel that way with clients too. So without wanting to sound like, oh, um, some clients are better than others, you know, because I don't know what of their status or something like that. Um, I do notice that there is that, that I have that leading edge with clients, you know, that I work with a particular kind of client for a while. And then um, it's in the beginning, it's like really brings me out that, that aliveness and that attunement out of me. And then after a time, uh, it might feel like it's become less of that leading edge and so there's a there's a progression that takes place so and i i want to come back to this topic of soul i think it's really important but i just want to um ask one more question about the the process because you i think you're beautifully describing how we can uh do that deep work and integrative work and refine ourselves and to be able to hold that space that transformational space that, that our clients kind of step into with us and and then I'm kind of hearing that that we're you're, you're advocating that we there's nothing wrong like there's no bad no bad thing that can arise in the the work you know that actually we're I hear you saying that we can just begin to include whatever's arising in our clients and that by doing so then you know that that will allow some a process to begin to start to unfold that a natural process I think you called it or organic and um. I'm just curious, like, if I've got that right. And then also, like, w inside of that, like, the role of, like, integrating energy. So, or, you know, it might show up inside of um, emotions or body sensations, you know, like, that, um, you know, there might be a particular tension or we're feeling or an absence in our bodies or in our energy. And, and, and like, what the, um, what the, the way of being with that might be, you know, like that you, you would advocate, like, because, um, you know, I, I would say we we did some work together, and and I was, I, I was blown away by the level of um, attunement, and subtlety that you guided me into, you know, in in my own, kind of, I wouldn't even call it sen sensations in the body. Of course, sensations were a gateway, but it felt very energetic, and so I'm just, I guess, I'm just inquiring into on that level, you know? Yeah, it's, um, um, it's like through a strong sense of presencing or mindfulness, as is another word that many people use for this today, it increases the resolution of the experience. It's like when you zoom in, you know, on your iPad and you zoom into a photo, and then you zoom in deeper and deeper and deeper. And if it's a good photo, then you can zoom in and see lots of details, subtle details. So when I look at a person, at first you see a person, but if you're present and related and attuned, so to know how to create a nervous system's attunement, then many parts of your own nervous system start to sync up with the nervous system of your client. And then the more present you can be in it, in an, in an open state of relating, 
a lot of data is flowing between us. And so what we practice a lot in our work is how to, how to open ourselves up to this refined data stream that often we don't pay attention to in regular daily life situations, that there's so much more information than we often use for our process of living. And especially in the process work, that's super important. But what we need for that is, I often say there are two ways of like two elements of growth. There's integration and there is training or practice. Integration means when my nervous system is kind of stuck and held, like if I have a trauma in my body, no way I will feel you through that place. I might feel you through other places in myself. But when it's about that topic that is similar to mine, no way. So then I need to go back to the default of my knowledge. And so then I need to go back and go, what did I learn about that kind of process? Not how I'm related to you specifically in that kind of process. And so it's, then it starts to be already a bit disrelated or a lot disrelated, depends. And But if I integrate that part, I can host you in me. Because in fact, when I speak with you right now, Joel lives in Thomas's nervous system and Thomas lives in Joel's nervous system. So we all, we both have the other one inside of our nervous system. If I pay attention to Joel in my nervous system and I allow that through my whole body, I can get a lot of connection and contact to the information that you are through my body. So perceiving each other is a whole body function. My entire body participates in resonating with your body. That's why my body knows stuff that happens in your body because I feel it through my body. My emotions can resonate with your emotions. And of course, my mind can think with you and my relational capacity, if I'm open, get something about your inner state of relatedness to me. And then we can take this into the spiritual dimension also, if you want to, or in the ancestral dimension, that our ancestors are also, not only I can think about that I have a grandmother, of course I have a grandmother, you also, but that through my ancestral nervous system, I can be attuned to and feel your grandmother's life because it's encoded in your nervous system. I can have access to that. So there are different dimensions of sensing until collective sensing. And, um, and so what you, what you said very beautifully is when we use that fine attunement and we can follow the flow of a process, Sometimes it speeds up, sometimes it slows down, and we can be attuned. So then we and our client become kind of a kind of a unit or a system. And as long as that system is resourced enough, it generates growth. So I need integration to open those parts because I can't practice something that's closed down or absent. I can't practice that. My practice can show me maybe that it shut down, but I can't open it through, I need to open it through integration work 
once my nervous system opens, I can refine it through practice. That's what many spiritual traditions do or contemplative traditions. Refine the capacity to perceive sometimes into incredibly high nuanced perceptions that are very, very refined and very amazing. So it's like a very fine-tuned instrument. And so for every one of us, that uh, everybody also who listens now, that we have integration to integrate our past. We have practice or, or growth through practice aspects that help us to refine and, and open up to vertical, vertically higher versions of ourselves. Yeah, nice. I want to talk about ancestral, and um, then then I'm just like the last thing is like uh, as we're attuning or fine tuning, it's important that we're we're working on that kind of you know embodied, sensory, energetic level. Um, we're not just you know thinking from above, but we're we're actually feeling together, or attuning, giving space for that that kind of like what has been unfelt or split off to to kind of emerge into awareness and then as it's allowed to do that without judgment without um you know that this is a bad thing or a wrong thing then it can have the space to kind of flow and integrate is that yeah you know yeah and also also when we think that what we said at the beginning that there is um millions of years of life that lead up to this moment. And for us to now for this into this conversation. Like certain, like for example, walking. Walking has been practiced for a very long time. It's not that we develop walking, we grow into walking, but it has been given to us by life. So when our DNA, like when our developmental system is ready, so we start to want to walk and we train it and learn it. But when you look at in our walking, there is a deep time quality of all the ancestors that walked. It's amazing. It's so, it's so deep and vast. And what I'm saying is that our bodies today contain many levels of development when, when we say body, I often feel that we, in mainstream society now, that often it's, ah, it's my body. It's like as if my body is a 40, 50, 60 years old body. But that our body is like an, an amazingly refined biocomputer that has so many functions over such a long period of time, trained, refined, put into an amazing equilibrium of functionality. And when you speak about tuning in with your client, then all of that is sitting with your client. And that's amazing. And then we see there are many integrated aspects and there are some unintegrated aspects that are still hanging around this past fears, past emotions, past thoughts, like all the stuff that often feels like a distraction in daily life. This is often past information that doesn't fit into this moment, but it's still swirling around in us because it hasn't been integrated. You know, if you look at if you look at the Holocaust, 
like the tremendous pain that happened to millions of people, where did that go? It just didn't dissipate. That lives in all of us that are descendants of people that either participated in it, lived in that culture, and then then. So that we have issues today, that we sometimes have strong phases of, of disruption in our life or issues coming up in our life, that's only clear because life tries to digest that stuff through generations and break it down in order to digest it because it can't, couldn't be digested by the generation where that happened. And that's only one example of so many uh, things that happened around the world. 400 years of racism in the U.S. Where, where is all that pain? That pain hasn't been digested yet. That lives as separation, as ongoing conflict, as reenactment of the trauma, as structural violence, as us versus them, as separation. You know, or apartheid or genocide in Rwanda. These are all, or, or gender violence. There's so many levels of deep pain. And then when we say, yeah, I'm struggling with fears, or I'm struggling in my relation, or I'm struggling with my job. Yeah, but that has a reason because we life through us tries to digest like a lot of stuff that didn't even happen only in our lifetime. And that's why sometimes expanding when we, because we are very me focused at this point in time. And I think it's good to be, to look at oneself, of course, and I'm an advocate of that. But it's also good to not be hypnotized just by the self, but to open up the context, because often it looks like, oh, it's my issue. You know, it's my stuff. And yes, it is. And we need to take responsibility for it. But a lot of that stuff happened before we were even born. And it lives in us today. So we need to walk it. But there is a bigger map certainly to many of the issues that we call today personal issues. It's beautiful. I wanted to ask you about the ancestral because what does it make possible when you actually have that bigger map that wasn't with just the individual? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, let's start here. Like, like everything, having a bigger map can an invitation not to look at my own pain and try to externalize it onto something else. So we will always put the disclaimer in that it can also become a bypass. But let's say I have a, a cup and that's my individual life. Let's say that's, or say it's you, it's Joe. And you're doing your inner work passionately for many years. What you do when you, every time you integrate something, you turn scarcity into generosity. So you create more. Your soul is, is potential light, potentiality. When you embody it more, it becomes a richer world, a world with more potential manifest through your body. So everything that you download as your potential enriches this personal space of Joel. Through your work, it enriches the collective space that you create around you. So you create more abundance. From a certain level of personal work we do, since it creates 
more energy when we integrate trauma it liberates energy it integrates energy it creates post-traumatic learning it harvests the learning that was still stuck in the trauma that couldn't be integrated that's why i think if cultures like germany for example start to or the us or any other place in the world start to integrate the trauma the collective trauma of the past it's an absolute and absolutely amazing contribution to the world's wisdom if something like the second world were in the holocaust would really be looked at at its depth and it takes time of course it's not they don't do this like in in a day but if we commit to that that every culture every country has in the constitution that we are committed to look at the residue of our past in order to have a brighter future, that it's part of being a citizen that we do that, I think we would accelerate global learning by thousands and thousands of times. And so because when you do your your work and you start to create more overflowing energy, one channel that that overflowing energy takes is into your ancestral stream. So your parents get affected by your growth. Your grandparents, even if they are not alive anymore, will be affected by your growth. And so we expand the map. And sometimes it's important, for example, that my grandmother went through the Second World War and she experienced the trauma she experienced, lives in me too. There are certain functions in my body, in my emotions, in my nervous system, where my grandmother's trauma has an effect on my life. And so doing personal or individual work, doing ancestral work, which means that I'm not able to just think about my grandmother and see my ancestral tree on a piece of paper, but be able to sense her or my grandfather or my great-grandfather that it becomes an alive experience again. That helps me to to get in touch with the data flow through generations because generations are like a data flow. And I believe that data flow is crucial for global warming because that data flow gives me a sense and I am an integral part of this planet. I'm not just on the planet. I'm an in my body is the planet. So I'm, as consciousness, an integral part of this planet, too. I'm not just that, but I'm that, too. And, um, and my, because when ancestors have great relation to each other, the parents with the grandparents, with the great-grandparents, and in between, it creates health. Right relation is health. But if they're, you know, the one doesn't talk to the other, there are broken relations in between. So the pipe system that channels resources, ancestral resources into my life is reduced. So the, if the pipe system is a bit broken, less, less water flows through it, the water gets lost somewhere. And so then I feel that symptom in my life. And that's why I think opening the map without distracting oneself, because some people don't want to feel themselves. They, they are too much with the collective. Oh, I feel the pain of all X, Y, Z. So it's good to feel my pain first, 
and then but then to become more compassionate but also clear in the compassion towards my ancestors and my ancestry uh, a root system of course into the cultural body and through that into the natural nature body into the planet and all the traumatizations that haven't been integrated within the tree you see in the crown you see in in our lives today that there are issues and that's why even if my grandmother is not alive anymore but if i can sense her and her life that information and i've seen this so many times when people when the healing expands into the ancestry it's amazing what sometimes happens also in the family system sometimes people that didn't talk to each other for 30 years start to call each other out of the blue start to be in contact like conflicts in family systems and i think that's also very important for any kind of family business that is owned in families for a long time that the trauma degree in the system determines how people either fight over resources or feel abandoned within the family system also in the business and i think there is a lot a lot where that can be applied of course yeah the there's um it's just huge you know like do you, do you think that in a way this is the work of our times and when i look out the world it, there seems to be so much tension out there and i wonder if there's an evolutionary tension inside of it you know that um there's so there's like the, we hear of the meaning crisis the the ecological crisis we're facing the the paradigm that seems so dominant of separation of individual the individual which has brought some good things to it but you know there's a kind of like like a numbness and an hyper individualization do you do you think like that we're you know entering into or we've yeah. entered into this phase shift where you know we're we're kind of like doing the integrative work that will allow for a new kind of paradigm to to emerge of interconnectedness or you know um different types of relationships yeah i think you're right like i think we are we are transitioning into a much more collective healing space that includes the individual healing space that's still going to continue but we are, we're going to open into that we see every you and I and everybody we have an individual ancestral and collective healing piece to do and and i think if the more people do that the more our world will flourish the less we do that the more we'll face crisis because what we don't look at voluntarily will show up involuntarily in our life so either i look at it because i choose or i have to look at it at a certain time because something happens in life the climate crisis or the covid crisis are just examples of like there's a pandemic but the crisis is the frozen land the trauma that preexisted covid that makes it very hard as a community to as a society to come together and to take care of it no we see lots of fragmentation lots of arguments lots of but that's it that's that shows just what is that's not a mistake that's what's really is there so that's the process 
and climate change the same. It's not that only now we started, could be at 26 COPs and now we, we understand that there's climate change. The people were talking about this decades ago, but it doesn't land, it doesn't land, it's too slow. Why it's too slow? Because there's a lot of frozen permafrost in our societies. Trauma doesn't want to change. Trauma by its nature is frozen. We need to heal it. And, and so, yes, on the one hand, I think we are in an expansion. We need collective healing because that's part of the answer to our current life situation on the planet. And the other part is also when our ancestors are not at, in peace, we can't be. Which means, like, we have to look at some of the major traumatizations, at the gender violence, we have to look at colonialism, and all the after effects of colonialism, racism, of genocides, anti-Semitism, all those things, they are huge trauma scars around the world that, that when we allow our ancestral information to be part of our life, we see, wow, like there is a lot of unintegrated information between some of our ancestors. Even if we take everybody who listens to coaches rising material and you would take all their ancestors and bring them into a room you would see how many conflicts or how many you know also atrocities happen between us and we can't we can't undo them because they happened but we can have a much more mature version of how we take ownership how we repair those relations and also repair life here and like this, when we create more peace in our ancestry, we will also see more peace in our society. But we can't just neglect and say, let's not deal with the past. Let's just look forward. Let's just be innovative. Great. Yeah, we can do that for a certain time, but that stuff doesn't disappear. You know, that stuff will walk behind us and one day it will meet us because it has to, because we can't walk away from deeply unethical stuff that happened um, in the former generations or in, in the centuries before us. This is supposed to make us better and more ethical people. And we are not looking back because we are just stuck in history. We are looking not back into what happened exactly as the story. We are paying attention to the split of information that is still dancing in front of our consciousness all the time as emotions, as fears, as doubts, as self-criticism, as, as depression, as fragmentation in our society. All those issues are unintegrated information. It's like I often say if snowflakes fall into a river, then they become water. But if they drop onto ice, iced over rivers, they pile up. So if, if an experience lands in my open self, I can integrate it and I can, I can respond to it. But if it drops onto ice in me, trauma in me, I can't deal with that situation properly. And then it creates more stress, more and more and more of whatever, or more indifference. And the second you named, you named an important part is absence. A lot of our social and personal issues happen where we can't feel. 
we can sense we are absent. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I see that in clients more and more as I do my work. It's like you can start to sense when there's an absence of something, you know, it's quite, it's quite a remarkable mm -hmm. uh, function, you know, actually, because um, normally you would think, oh, yeah, I'm feeling what's here. But then you can start to feel what's not here, what's not being included. Exactly. Um, and I, I wonder, like with ancestral and collective work, um, how we might recognize that I hear you speaking to that, that if it can show up in the form of like um, splits information or like, you know, t emotional tension or, f you know, tensions in general, um, how, how might we recognize when the ancestral is showing up in an individual client or with a group? And it, what's the process there? Is that, is that the same process we've been describing where, you know, it's about, you know, being, being conscious with it, presence to it so that it can f flow? Mm, yeah, it's a bit also what you said. It shows either up as stress. So if I'm committed to look at challenges and difficulties in my life, like I have a practice where I look at it in the evening or so I reflect on my day and I look at, okay, what was difficult for me today? What really happened there? How did I feel physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally in those moments? And I bring more awareness and attention to it. So that's one. Then I expose myself to exchange peer exchange, supervision exchange. So I have uh, all the time refreshing uh, reflections. And then, and then I, I pay attention to great process facilitation, as you said, is not just looking at what's there. The excellence of process facilitation is that we see what's not there, what's missing, what's the absent piece, what's the question that isn't being asked. What's the thing we can't feel because it's turned off? Because trauma always has one part that is turned off. So there is absence. And absence was an intelligent function when we needed it. We, it, we are absent for a good reason. It's intelligent, but it doesn't serve us today often. So it limits our capacity as grown-ups. But when we put it in place or... When it has been put in place culturally, it's great to absence parts of ourselves in a concentration camp or when bombs are uh, falling on two cities. You know, that we, that we can survive better, it's great to shut strong fear or stuff down. But later on, if those social pockets of absence are not being turned on again, then that's where criminality, where all kinds of issues grow because there's a lack of awareness. There's a lack of sensing. People feel alienated. People feel separate from each other, alone, isolated. And, and that kind of those pockets, um, again, they were intelligent as a defense mechanism, as a collective defense mechanism. But now we have to take care of it. And I think we need to get better at taking care of those wounds. And as you said, noticing, for example, if I talk to somebody and I feel that the person is emotionally turned off for a moment, just to slow down and take a breath and not keep talking, 
is a wonderful thing to do. That's not so hard to do. And it gives the person maybe a chance to slowly come back online. And when I sit with a client, when I see my client is going through an absent moment, I can ask, so how do you feel right now? And then the person is, yeah, I feel that. Uh, but actually the person says, I cannot tell you what I feel emotionally. They great. So let's notice that. And that absence is a, an amazingly important part of the process work because that's often when I don't recognize it, I try to make my client feel something. If I see this already, I say, hey, my alarm bells need to go on. Why, do, why would I want to make you feel something if your energy field tells me it's too much? If you don't feel much emotionally, you have a very important reason. I don't need to make you feel, touch an emotion. That's an old intervention that we did in the 80s. We don't do this anymore. Like we don't need to make people feel something. We need to be attuned to the process of absencing so that the nervous system can turn itself on alone. That's a skillful intervention. But that needs me to be aware of it. If I'm not aware of it, oh, you're not feeling something, so let's do an exercise. Or here you have a question. Or here you have a tool to feel something. And, and I think as, as um, you know, important emotions are, and we all want, uh, you know, to be connected to our emotions, but we need to be aware that not being connected is an important message. And that in the diet of facilitator and client, if we, if we make space for it, amazingly beautiful healing processes can happen. I kind of hear like we're learning to ride or to tune into the nervous system's natural rhythms, you know, rather, rather than impose a rhythm on top, you know, which is aggressive or something. We're actually, mm -hmm. we're actually flowing with the natural rhythm of the nervous system. That's beautiful. Um, right. And also yeah. being attuned that numbing is a process that when facilitator and client, because the client's usually not aware of this at first, when we point it out, slowly an awareness is growing. And when we can create a facilitator client awareness of the numb part, which means that the person was overwhelmed at a certain developmental age in that place. So there was too much fear and it was good to shut it down. And so now when we stay with the absence and, and the absence becomes aware of itself in the client, then naturally it opens up at a certain moment because now there's safety of relation and, and allows the fear to come back. And then we can come back to the emotional connection, digest the fear together, digest the stress that was there together ground ourselves and then the heart opens more that's a much more skillful intervention than try to get the person to feel something which is overriding it's not only destructive it's also overriding the natural information of the client and it will harden the defense maybe the person will touch something but it's hardened the original defense so that's why i think it's um like their attunement, as you said, and being in the flow with the client is very important. Yeah, yeah, great. 
Yeah, this is really, really beautiful distinctions. Um, and I, I, I want to ask you, I know we don't have that long left, but I wanted to ask you about um, the idea of embodying soul or, you know, our, um, you know, our kind of embodied contribution, unique contribution in this lifetime. And and just to preface that with like, it seems like I, I've been playing around this idea with like, at some points we're disidentifying from something, you know, like a part that might have been with us for a long time since our childhood that, you know, once we disidentify from it, we can be with it as presence in a loving way that it begins to feel safe and, and, and can relax, you know. Um, but then th- there are times where we're actually identifying, you know, like, for example, with a certain, um, you know, I would say soul quality or, or like, um, you know, empowered quality, then it's like we don't want to dis- disidentify from that. We actually are that, you know. And so there's this journey. And anyway, I don't know what you think about that, but just to ask you about this process of um, what happens as we do the integrative work over time and that we build a certain, um, you know, strength or way of being that, that allows us to, to live a full life and be a contribution. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I put a question in there. I'll just see, I'll see where you take yeah, it. That, first of all, we all are like a, a hopefully creative tension that the evolutionary impulse through our soul has with the past of our ancestors. So that's why purpose is, in my understanding, not just career, but purpose is the combination of expression and creative output plus the integration of the past or the healing work that we all have to do. So when I said the I, we call it IAC trauma integration, like individual, ancestral, and collective. It's a continuum. It's a system, an interdependent system. When we integrate more of our portion, our portion of everything, just our portion is enough. That's already enough. So if we do that, then the impact of how our soul can land in our body, because where I carry trauma, the light or the consciousness of my soul can't embody itself because it's already full of trauma. So when I integrate the trauma, higher consciousness can embody itself through the former levels of consciousness. But that's an important part. Higher initiation, so something opens up for me. Embodiment of initiation means um, that I learn to live it. It's not just enough to have an opening, that I can live that opening as my life is the manifestation. And the big wisdom traditions talk about these two processes, like initiation, manifestation. And um, so when when, uh, we do our inner work, we open the past to a certain degree up or we integrate the past into presence so that more of the future potential can land through us. So we can become living updates very creative people in society, they are living updates. They are constantly being updated and they are updating parts of society all the time. So we had, we, we know very culturally creative people that are constantly bringing new versions into life or did in the past and um, as in former generations. And um, so when we embody soul, when you said disidentify, what, what does it mean? In the in this 
in the contemplative and spiritual practice, we speak about subject-object transcendence. But it means that first I need to develop a certain quality. It, it's kind of a loop that comes back into an integrated version, embodied version. So when I, let's say, because subject-object transcendence sounds often very spiritual and far away for many people, but every one of us went through it many, many times. When I learned to walk, first of all, I couldn't walk. I was looking at people walking. I copied the walking into my mind. This activated my internal capacity. And then I tried. It took me some time to get even onto my feet. <laughs> and then to make the first step and fall down and make this. Uh, and so, But eventually, from a 2D impulse, it's a two-dimensional impulse, just energy. It becomes a 3D capacity, so it embodies itself through muscle, skeleton, through uh, nervous system, many feedback loops, balance, all this stuff. So I create a three-dimensional version through my body because my body lives in a three-dimensional world. And then after some time, when that ability becomes a capacity or a competence, I can eat my ice cream while I'm walking. It's amazing. Today I can give a session on the phone while I'm walking in the park. So I can give a client session while I'm walking in the park. So walking doesn't consume my entire computer capacity so that I can't do anything besides. So I have a lot of space while I'm walking. I can enjoy nature. I can be in a partly contemplative state or I can be very focused on a client or on a business conversation while I'm walking in the park. And, and today I can even run and do some things while I'm running. I can talk to somebody on the phone. And so when I, um, I have witnessing 4D, I can, and, the, and the competence is a capacity that is so integrated because I practice it enough that I have enough space either for new inspiration or I, uh, other things because it's so easy. So it, it, it's, it's integrated into the whole. So every one of us went through subject object transcending walking. And, and uh, so it's not just a spiritual high function that uh, only, you know, mystics understand. It's something that, we went through many times and because our ancestors subject object transcended certain aspects of consciousness for us that's already part of our development now the leading edge functions everybody every one of us has a leading edge level of consciousness that we are identified with and that's our practice today and then the other one is to discern between i want to because I think subject-object transcendence is a natural function of a good practice, also a good mentor relation, a good, um, like a natural process when somebody is ready for it, that there's also a time when that's ready to be transcended. That means that, I, that it's not me, but it becomes in me. So the subject, me, I can suddenly see that, oh, wow, there's a bigger consciousness level that can witness what was me until today. But this is still in me. 
like this, I can learn to witness my thinking. I see, oh, I'm not just my thinking. I can witness every thought I have, but I'm, I'm much bigger space than my mind. I'm much bigger space than my emotions. I'm much bigger space than the body. So who is Thomas? Is Thomas the body, the emotions, the mind? Is Thomas the space? Or is there something bigger than that space that is aware of thinking? So, so these are questions of subject-object transcendence. And, and, um, and I think that gives a lot of inner freedom. The only thing I would love to add to that is that um, in some, for some people and some traditions, it's like, how can we let go or get rid of our ego? Right. And, and often the ego is being misunderstood. Like for some people, what they call ego is the sum of the resistances and tensions in the body that give a sense of like there's something fixed because regular structures of consciousness are flow and more rigid structures of consciousness are holding the past. So often people say, I want to get rid of the holding the past and they call that ego because the real structures of consciousness integrated hundreds of thousands of years of life they are presence. So what do I want to get rid of? I want to get rid of presence or I want to get rid of the friction, the tension, the patterns, the recurrent issues. But that is actually my integration purpose. So that's a delicate question that we don't have to answer now. I mean, it's not just for this conversation, but I think it's an important distinction to be made what is subject object transcendence and what's an attempt to get away from one's pain and call that egolessness <laughs> that there is a there's a, a delicate question to be held for now mm. yeah yeah i know i certainly have seen myself in that trap you know for many years of spiritual bypassing and mm -hmm. um that, that like meditative practice had nowhere to land inside of me so that you know, I'd get off the mat, and then you know, uh, half an hour later, I would be uh, tense and reactive because right. the, 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 there was no integrative work done. Um, and and at the same time, um, yeah, that there's there's it, through my own journey, like that I've seen that um, whilst there has been more and more of that subject-object transcendence, there is. Um, which which then creates more of a sense of like a spacious self or, uh, um, you know, being more process and flow than fixed, you know, re fixed sense of self, which is defended and around <clears throat> safety and belonging or something. Um, at the same time, there's still, there is still a sense of like personhood or, um, you know, self, I don't know, self, yeah. And, and then there's a uniqueness to that self and, uh, certain passions and interests and intelligences that I have, which are different than other people, and um, that they they become mm. more liberated in a sense, you know, as the work exactly. happens. And um, yeah, I, I, that um, there's something very beautiful about that process of of being able to tune into um, what is it that's that's like that. Maybe it's that edge you talked about of practice. It's like living on that edge of practice and the synchronicities that can start to take place there as, you know, I discover certain t 
teachers or books or messages or you know certain things start to come through me and there's a there's a kind of whole gestalt of that process of embodiment that I think maybe is part of the teaching of our times too you know how can we each play our role our unique place in the symphony of the collective yeah. in these times beautifully said yeah that that we can honor that individual beauty and that the most universal expresses itself through the most personal or unique or specific and that and that honoring that and not trying to get away from it but deeply embodying that is my deepest humanity i think is a beautiful you described this beautifully i think that's a very healthy embodied version of the spiritual practice and that also pays attention that spirit becomes a resource in the way we live it's not something that takes us out it's something that brings us in and enriches our life because it's part of creation or creating so it's adding value it's adding something to this world so we don't want to look for what's another option or possibility but what is this option or possibility that's very powerful because then i think we really become partners in this world where we can trust each other that every one of us plays his or her role or tune or note you know in this orchestra and so we can trust each other that um that you will you know to live your purpose i will live mine she will live hers and together we actually create the world that we want to live in together and i think if we if we do that and if we take the residues of our ancestry in in account then we can become a very powerful force together to meet the challenges that we are facing at the moment. Hmm. I maybe that's an imperative, huh? Yeah. I yeah, I I think this is a really rich kind of, you know, kind of call to end on to people listening. Yeah. And as usual Thomas, I'm just really delighted to spend time with you and and appreciate the the, the distinctions you make and I want to underline that to people listening, you know that there's these are really potent powerful distinctions that are being offered about the kind of work that's possible and that's needed in the world so you know th thank you for being willing to to share this with generosity yeah, it's always a pleasure with you to enjoy our conversations and our relation and our friendship that's building over time so thank you me too yeah. oh um yeah and, and just um where can we find out more about your work too yeah thomashubel.com hubel is h u e b l.com uh that's my main website uh we have the pocketproject.org uh is uh, yeah pocketproject.org or info that's our non-profit ngo like a global ngo where we do collective trauma work all around the world and um we have many online courses we have deep in person uh, training programs and we do lots of projects around the world to see to to apply what we did here and we do some facilitator trainings and uh in our academy so you know, once you go there you can check it out mm. And maybe one more thing, I'd, uh, maybe I would love to um, say that last November, my book got published, Healing Collective Trauma. So everybody who is interested in the more collective dimension of trauma, I think can find it there. All right. Thanks very much for tuning in and I will see you next time.